Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A team of anthropologists recently led a multi-year study to better understand the Utah section of the Transcontinental Railroad. The result is Rails East to Ogden, Utah's Transcontinental Railroad Story. That's a publication in the Bureau of Land Management's Cultural Resources series. The publication has now received an award from the U.S. Department of the Interior. Quoting from the publication, a largely unknown national treasure rests within a two-hour drive from Salt Lake City. Tucked into the sparsely populated western expanse of Box Elder County, uh, the ghosts of uh, Utah, the United States' first transcontinental railroad still haunt 87 miles of abandoned original railroad grade on lands managed by the BLM, National Park Service, and to a lesser extent, private land. We're going to learn about this today. We bring in uh, Molly Cannon, Executive Director of the USU Museum of Anthropology. Uh, welcome uh, back to the program. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having us. Good to, good to hear from you. And uh, we'll be talking with Michael Sheehan, uh, Cultural Resources Program Lead with the Bureau of Land Management, uh, Salt Lake uh, City Field Office. Uh, Michael Sheehan, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Appreciate you uh, uh, joining us. Uh, let me start with Michael Sheehan. Uh, the, the, congratulations to both of you on this and uh, the rest of the members of the team uh, for uh, for this award. Um, this uh, this has been going on for I think a few years. The 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 study here and the preparation for this publication. Yes, indeed. Um, in fact, the um, <clears throat> the initial impetus to to uh, do this book was the run up to the sesquicentennial of the, the Golden Spike event. And um, we decided to take a, take a fresh look at a book that was published about the, the Utah segment of the Transcontinental Railroad grade that was last published back in 1994. And so we've, we've learned a good deal since 1994, and a, and a group of us sat down together and thought this would be an opportune time to, uh, to update that publication. And the and the Rails East to Ogden volume is the the result of that collaboration. Now, understand there's a there's a byway, right? You can drive out, you know, along this uh, abandoned uh, r- railway, yeah. and I guess now you can uh, you can have this publication with you as uh, as a guide. Well, yes, um, the trans- the BLM segment of the Transcontinental Railroad grade through Box Elder County is a BLM backcountry byway, so um, we encourage folks to get out there and. And visit the landscape, and and literally you can drive on the railroad grade, except for those areas where it passes over a, a trestle or, or something of that sort that won't sustain you know modern modern vehicular traffic. And and the book serves as a good guide to that. We also um, have an app that's that's georeferenced to the railroad grade, so so you can access this this app that's produced by Travel Stories, and, and you get you can actually get an on-the-ground narration um, as, you're, as you're traveling down that backcountry byway, which, which really, combined with the more detailed information you get from the book, will, will provide you with excellent context for, for what you're seeing on the landscape. I believe both uh, Molly Cannon and Michael Sheehan, both, uh, what, PhDs, uh, both what, anthropology, archaeology, both of you? My PhD is in anthropology mm-hmm. from yeah. the University of New York at Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Molly can remind me. Uh, my PhD is actually in geography and, ah. and human geography. So, uh, uh, but I have I've studied in anthropology and archaeology. That's been my practice. 
So I, I don't know for sure, but this seems to match up very well with your training, this particular project. Yes, my role in the project was really involved in the mapping and the geospatial work um, where I've assisted with the geophysical surveys at some of these sites and mentored a student who completed her thesis work here at Utah State University using spatial analysis of some of the data collected from uh, the historic town site of Terrace. Yeah, very interesting um, uh, archaeological study, right? Uh, so you're studying, obviously, all manner of artifacts left behind, uh, including trash, I understand. <laughs> well, we often, that's what we leave behind. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> we take our valuable items with us. Yeah. Uh, but here at these historic sites, um, you know, there's um, there's any number of types of material culture and material artifacts that are left behind, some that are complete, um, but others that, you know, have been broken. Um, we often find the trash dump sites of historic towns, um, which have just a wealth of information for for us to, to understand anything from what they were eating to how they were sharing food, how food was coming into these sites, um, if they were growing their own foods. Um, and so that's how we use these the, the trash, I guess, Tom, as you put it, um, to understand behavior in the past. Um, here at many of these historic sites along the railroad grade, though, it's not only occupation, it's the actual construction of, of the transcontinental railroad. And so um, it's just one of those valuable sites in our in the American West, where um, so many of these railroad features are still pre preserved, and you can um, see the detailed work and how they were constructed, and the types of materials that they're using, and the craftsmanship. Yeah, very very yeah. interesting. We'll return a little bit to that as we go along, Michael Sheehan. Um, it's it, I want to get into some of the history of this, um, but before we do. You know, if you were to, if you go out on that byway, you know, drive on the actual railroad grade to, and maybe see some of these uh, ghost towns, abandoned towns, um, what what do people get from that? Why why do you want people to go out and experience this? Well, you know, his, history is one of those things that that lies in the shadows for a lot of folks, and when 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 you get out on the landscape and you can actually have a physical experience um, at, a, at an archaeological site such as those that we have along the Transcontinental Railroad grade, it, it takes that history and pulls it out of the shadows and makes it very real. Um, you, can, you can get out there, and Molly mentioned Terrace. We've done a lot of work at Terrace over the last few years. You can, with, with that, that background you get from some of the literature that's been produced, you can go out on that landscape down the backcountry byway, visit Terrace. There are photographs, uh, historic photographs of Terrace that you can get online. You can go there, you can look at those photographs and look around at what you see now. And there, there are two very different pictures. And if you, if you stay at a place like Terrace or any of the other sites along the railroad grade for that matter, you, you, can, you can soak in the, the history of, of what happened there. And, and it's a big history. Um, 
I mean, to be to be perfectly honest, I think there are a lot of folks who don't realize that that segment of the transcontinental railroad grade that runs through northern Utah is the longest continuous segment of the original railroad grade that's left anywhere in the U.S. The the grade was originally from Omaha to Sacramento, roughly 1,800 miles. But we've got 87 miles left in Box Elder County, and that's the biggest continuous chunk. And and that's what makes driving down that, that backcountry byway so interesting because you, you travel through all the different kinds of sites that were produced during the course of the construction of the railroad, but also the sites that were used to maintain the railroad after it was built. You, you really do get um, an excellent cross-section of the railroad experience out there. And, and the other thing, too, given, given the world we live in, there's, there's, there's material culture, there's there's activity everywhere in the landscape. Um, we live in a, in a relatively urban area, right? We go down the street, we go to a mall or a supermarket within 10 minutes. You go out on the railroad grade to a place like Terrace, and you stand there and you look around and realize that people live there for 30-some-odd years, and it looks like there's nothing there. It just looks like a barren landscape. And yet, Places like Terrace were thriving communities between roughly 1870 and 1895. So this this work that's happening makes the history real, and and that's something that that I find incredibly valuable. Hmm. Well, Ken, I want to ask you the same question. What, uh, of course, you know, when you're out there, you have your professional hat on, right? But I imagine you have some personal feelings as well. What what uh, what what um, why do we encourage people to get out there and, and to see this this living history? It, it tells us something about how people lived on the landscape 150 years ago. It tells us something about the way people from different cultures in those very isolated places interacted with one another. And and those are those are difficult things sometimes to get from the written record. Um for example, when we go out to Terrace and we, we see the material culture on the ground and we can track where certain individuals from certain cultures did what they did. And, and we, can, we can see with a certain degree of specificity um, how intensive those interactions were. And, and the thing is, and, and I think this is an important lesson for the world we live in now, were it not for those interactions that people from different places and different cultures um, manifested, these, these kinds of towns and these kinds of efforts like we see with the construction of the railroad grade wouldn't have happened. They just wouldn't have happened. So there's, I feel like there's a takeaway lesson for the modern world there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Molly Cannon, let me turn to you. Uh, what, what's your perspective on this? Uh, the people get out on that byway and they experience these things. Uh, what what do you hope they get from that? I what I enjoy about visiting these sites along the transcontinental railroad and particularly along the byway is this a ability to really kind of slow down and be present within the landscape. I mean, I think this is just something that happens as part of field work because it's so intense and you have to be so focused on what you're doing. But as traveling because I've often taken, you know, tour groups out there or I've taken my own family out and we just 
uh, visit the sites and and the BLM has done such an excellent job of putting these interpretive um, pieces together through a digital media such as the app, but also the interpretive signs at at the actual site locations, um, and now this publication, which will help. Um, you know, there's a, there's a it's a easy to sort of slow down and sort of learn something from this landscape um, as a as an archaeologist and someone who's interested in the past, um, you know, I'm always amazed at thinking about how people solved uh, problems, um, the solutions that they came up with. And as Mike said, these sites represented very, I mean, it's hard to think about this, but cosmopolitan areas for their time. People were coming from countries all over the world to contribute to the effort of building and maintaining and sustaining the railroad across this part of Utah. And um, those community dynamics are really interesting to study. Um, And it's through the material record that we can learn so much more than what is preserved in the written record. And these communities, uh, very diverse, right? Um, Because after the railroad was built, you know, that finished, we, we tend to end the story, at least in my mind, at Promontory, right? But then, uh, you know, workers, uh, many of them stayed on, right? And that, that that's who populated these towns. Yes, and um, maybe Mike wants to jump in here, but many of these communities, you know, were lasted until the, um, until the railroad realigned um, and to its present course, which is further to the south, um, but they would have been employed, continued to be employed by the railroad to maintain the the rail line, um, and then communities built up around that. So places like Terrace, Maitland, Kelton became larger communities sustaining other businesses, including shops and um, you know uh, hotels. Um, and, and other services that would have, um, where at places, I, th- I believe Kelton, or um, excuse me, Terrace at one point had nearly a thousand people maybe living there at once. Hmm. Michael Sheehan, I want to have you comment on that as well. Um, uh, by the way, I'll just preface this by saying I you know, learned a few things from this publication, one of which, and maybe most people knew this, but I didn't. Um, Central Pacific and Union Pacific uh, were going to bypass each other, right? They, were, um, they, did. they did bypass they, each other. They bypassed each other, yeah. It had to, had to be a negotiation to say, okay, we're going to choose this point at Promontory to, to, to have the railroads meet. Yes. In fact, um, there, was, there was congressional legislation that, that uh, created the move to build the railroad, and it was, it was determined that each would start from Sacramento and from Omaha, respectively, but nobody told them where to stop. <laughs> so, and they got paid by the mile. So, so they were just building and building and building, and, and there is literally uh, something on the order of 50 to 80 miles of double grade, where they, they cro- I mean, they didn't cross, but they were parallel. And uh, you can actually see those parallel grades if you go out on the backcountry byway, and it's also uh, evident at Golden Spike. You can you can go up to Golden Spike and see the parallel grades, and in some in some places, they're 
they're not much more than 100 meters apart, mm. which has always made me wonder about the kind of conversation that must have took place between the crews building those uh, different different uh, alignments, if you will. Yeah. But, you know, the, the thing, getting back to, to what Molly was talking about, one of the things that has been so striking to me about understanding the role the railroad played in the United States in general and in Utah in particular stems from the, the spatial awareness of being at a place like Terrace doing the work that we've done. This is very remote, Box Elder County, very remote. And yet, when that railroad was operational and during its heyday from uh, – you know, like I said, roughly 1870 to 1895, 1900, there were upwards of 10 trains a day going through Terrace, which on the face of it doesn't seem like a lot, but that's one train every two hours. That's a lot of train traffic. And then when the, when the railroad realigned, uh, as Molly indicated, further south, that left this promontory segment around the north end of the lake kind of high and dry. But the local populations wanted to maintain the railroad because they used it for moving their produce from that remote area down to markets. And so from about 1904, when that realignment happened, until the early 1940s, when when the railroad was decommissioned, that was used for local traffic. Hmm. And and the thing is, during that that period, uh, the earlier period, from 1870 to 1895, the world by virtue of that railroad, went right through Terrace, and it went right through Matlin, and it went right through Kelton. You could be a Chinese railroad worker living at Terrace. You might have lived there 15 or 20 years, and you might have children who never got out of Terrace or didn't go very far. And yet they had access to the world just by virtue of that train that came through upwards of 10 times a day. Mm. I find that a, a stunning realization. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. Um, we're we're overdue for a break. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about. Um, you, you've talked about both of you talked about this bifurcation, right? Um, the the Lucin cutoff um, happened. Yeah. What about the turn of the century? Um, and and so, but but these towns continued on at least for a while. Um, Let's uh, talk more following a break. We're talking with uh, Molly Cannon, who is the executive director of USU Museum of Anthropology, and Michael Sheehan, cultural resources program lead with the Bureau of Land Management. They, along with others, uh, were involved in a project to better understand the Utah section of the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, Publication resulted, Rails East to Ogden, Utah's Transcontinental Railroad Story. Uh, That's now received uh, an award from the U.S. Department of Interior. More follows this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a publication called Rails East to Ogden, Utah's Transcontinental Railroad Story. It's a publication in the Bureau of Land Management's Cultural Resources Series, and that's now received an award from the U.S. Department of Interior. A team of anthropologists uh, led a multi-year study to better understand the Utah section of the Transcontinental Railroad I think specifically on BLM lands, right? Um, and uh, so the publication has uh, resulted. We're talking about this history on the program today with Molly Cannon, Executive Director of USU Museum of Anthropology, and Michael Sheehan, Cultural Resources Program Lead with the uh, Bureau of Land Management. So Molly Cannon, I want to start with you in this segment. So if we talk about, say, Terrace, we've been talking about this town of Terrace. Um, 
What do, what do we learn from the archaeology, um, I guess, in the history, and go to some of the history as well, uh, about this this town? There would have been um, all manner of uh, people, including uh, Chinese workers who stayed in this town, right? Yes. Um, so Terrace has um, a number of—it's uh, really an archaeological town at this point. There are no standing structures. There are the footings of many of the original, um, some of the buildings in the sort of what might be a downtown part of the of, of terrace. Um, you can even from aerial photography see where the roundhouse, and certainly you can see the grade um, of the rail line coming through town. Um, but the rest of what you see on the ground today are the material remains. So there's, you know, brick, um, there's clay piping from the water system bringing water into terrace, um, there's broken bottles and, and glass um, that are utilitarian. I There's probably window glass. Maybe, Mike, you can help me out with that. I can't remember. Um, a lot of ceramics both European ceramics, and then there's a substantial amount of material culture that's related to um, the Chinese workers and that they brought um, with them or had come um, from the railroad, um, brought into terrace, um, including ceramic bowls and um, cups, um, pieces of spoon. They found buttons. Um, gaming pieces, and so just all kind of aspects of life are represented there at Terrace um, through the material record. Hmm. Michael Sheehan, um, estimates uh, the population could have been as high as 1,000 people. Uh, one of the problems in estimating that is the, like, the Chinese, I understand, were excluded from the census. Yeah, the, the record-keeping with regard to, to the Chinese workers was not particularly good, and, and, and there's some indication in some of the records we've seen that it's downright biased. Um, so that, that really does complicate the ability to, to estimate the number of Chinese folks that were living at places like Terrace. Um, and, and in a very significant way, that's where the archaeology comes into play, because we have at Terrace uh, a fairly well-defined Chinatown, and it's, it's the third largest Chinatown in the state of Utah in the late 19th century. And based on what limited information we have from the census records and what we've been able to glean from the studies of Chinatown that we've done so far, it looks like there was a sustained population of three to 400 Chinese, give or take, over the entire course of occupation at Terrace, which spanned you know, roughly 35 years. Mm. Uh, so, Molly Cannon, did you work on any of the other uh, sites here on this promontory route? Yes. So my work, like I said, was mostly focused on um, documenting the archaeological record through um, mapping techniques. So we employed ground-penetrating radar at um, the historic um or what's called Old Terrace Cemetery, as well as the Terrace Cemetery, and then um, uh, a couple of different features at Bovine, which is um, one of the sites further west from, from Terrace, 
and at Maitland, um, where we uh, surveyed a part of the, um, I guess, kind of the the town, the t- downtown part of that side as well. Mm. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the the techniques you use there. That sounds interesting. Sure. So um, th- these are all part of what we call geophysical surveys. Um, what they're using are technologies that help us image below the ground surface. Um, it's not like a photograph or an x-ray where you get to see something exactly as what it looks like. Rather, it's sending these radio waves through the ground surface that then are reflected based on whatever might be below the ground surface. So in the case of at one of the historic cemeteries, for example, um, Old Terrace Cemetery, there's a fenced area. There are sort of um, rock alignments that might suggest a possible grave there, but there's no um, headstone. So it, it was they were unsure of if there are graves or burials there, and if so, how many. And so that was a, 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 an ideal place to use the ground-penetrating radar um, to help us image what's below the ground without having to disturb anything um, to see if there are burials there. And so the radio wave in this case would come down if there is any kind of burial that would change the shape of those waves as it's reflected back to our instrument. And then we collect all of that information and produce a map. And that's sort of what we use to interpret what might be below the ground surface. Mm-hmm. So the radio waves, you don't have to disturb the ground, I guess. Um, so, so one more, I guess, less invasive technique. It is. It's uh, maybe what we call minimally invasive. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually, um, there's no ground disturbance other than the radio wave itself, uh, but that uh, doesn't move or shift anything under the ground surface. Um, it is somewhat limited um in its application due to vegetation or terrain, because in this, if you can kind of imagine, um, like some of the newer lawnmowers that sit very close to the ground, uh, this instrument kind of looks like that, where you're pushing it across the ground surface, and it actually sort of rides right on top of the ground surface, the antenna does. And so if you have large rocks or boulders or big pieces of vegetation, and by that I mean, you know, stubby sagebrush, which is what's out there. Um, it it can be kind of difficult to collect. Mm. Um, but both the sites that, that we've worked at um, had pretty clear ground coverage, and so we were able to collect nice data there. Mm. Michael Sheehan, I want to talk about uh, maybe life at a town like Terrace before and after the Lucinda cutoff. Tell me, uh, so uh, I guess the owner of the Union Pacific acquired uh, Central Pacific at some point, had control and wanted to, wanted to do some cost savings, understand, and so that was one impetus for let's, uh, let's reroute the, the railroad right across the Great Salt Lake, right? That's correct. Um, historically, uh, that, that section around the north side of the Great Salt Lake was even even, it was problematic from the beginning, in large measure because the terrain is is fairly uneven. 
there are a lot of a lot of hills, a lot of um, drainages that the trains have to cross. And and the thing about 19th century train technology that's important to, to wrap our arms around is that the locomotives, relative to a horse-drawn wagon, were very powerful. But relative to the kinds of trains that we have now, they they weren't. And and the the trains of the late 19th century, particularly those traversing the Transcontinental Railroad grade, really couldn't cope very effectively with grades that were in excess of 4%. So think about walking down a sidewalk 100 feet long, and from the point you start to the point you end, that sidewalk tilts up four feet. If we were walking on that sidewalk, we probably wouldn't even notice that elevation change. But a locomotive traveling through Box Elder County between Kelton and Terrace, for example, has a whole series of ups and downs to negotiate that come close to or exceed that 4%. So they had to have helper engines at, at various points along the way, and, and that's expensive. When, when you have multiple locomotives to move a unit of freight from point A to point B, that gets to be very costly. And so even, even from the, the outset, the railroads were looking for a less expensive way to traverse Utah. And the Lucene Cutoff was, was conceived, constructed, and completed in 1904. So prior to 1904, from, again, roughly 1869, 1870, through the turn of the century, Terrace was a thriving community. It was a it was a maintenance facility. That's that's what made Terrace go. It was a main maintenance facility for the railroad uh, between Nevada and Ogden. That's what the Roundhouse was all about. It was a it was a major facility for maintaining the locomotives. And if you've ever if you've ever had the occasion to stand close to a steam locomotive, they have a lot of moving parts, and uh, it's not hard to imagine how they would break down. So um, they. Initially, they had to go around the north side of the lake. They had to have a maintenance facility, and that was kind of where why Terrace was put where it was. And again, like I mentioned earlier, they had they had ten trains a day going through there. They had a population of somewhere around a thousand people during the high point of its of its occupancy. Um, it was it was a it was a big bustling place, and you can tell from the nature of the facilities that were put there that the railroad thought that Terrace was going to be a happening place for a long time. They even built um, um, what they called an Athenium up there, and it was, it was a kind, kind of a 19th century cultural center. They had a library there. They had a pleasure garden there. They, they may have had what we would think of as a small amphitheater. There's no evidence of it now. You can see it in an aerial photograph by looking at, at different, type, the different kinds of vegetation that are present on the surface. But this was a bustling place. And if you look at photographs of, of terrorists that were taken in the eight, late 1870s and 1880s, they have a bustling Main Street, saloons and saddleries and dry goods stores. Um, one of the things that the archaeology uh, suggested to us last year was that there might have even been a Chinese restaurant on Main Street. So there was a lot of activity going on in Terrace. Once the Lucene Cutoff was operationalized and that promontory segment was 
abandoned for for uh, transcontinental traffic, then things started to slow down a lot. Um, just by virtue of train traffic, you go from ten trains a day to three a week. Now the 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 need to have that that maintenance facility there is reduced. They ended up moving that out. Um, I think they moved those maintenance facilities to a uh, Wells. Uh, and some to Mon- uh, Montello in Nevada. So you went from a very bustling community pre-Lucin cutoff to something that was just a ghost of its former self from 1904 until the early, well, about 1910, I think, is when when the town was more or less completely abandoned. There had been a fire there in 1903, which essentially destroyed a lot of what was left. And so I the, the town itself was, for all intents and purposes, abandoned by 1910. Mm. And then, uh, uh, so such ghost towns here, right? But the railroad itself, the actual physical railroad, I uh, understand, uh, was still there until 1942. Yes. The, that's the, the, it served local traffic from roughly 1904 until 1942, and that's when... Um, there was this global event called World War II that uh, required a lot of steel resources. So what the railroad did was pull out the remaining rails, and those were um, reconfigured into bombs, bullets, and battleships. And, and that was the end. That was the end of the railroad. Um, and at that point, then the, the railroad company decommissioned it, and it was, it was done. Hmm. Uh, we'll go to a break here soon, but I want to turn back to Molly Cannon. Uh, you mentioned that you um, not only take students out there to these places, uh, do studies as an archaeologist, you take your family out there as well. Um, and so I'm wondering, so, so with, I guess with that hat on, um, the, you know, the railroad's not there anymore. Um, the, if, you, if you go to some of these towns, uh, you know, there's some artifacts on the ground, but uh, there, there's nothing there, essentially, you know, standing structures. Uh, so you have to use your imagination, I suppose. You do. You have to. And, and that is where some of these resources that we've put together and, and Mike and his, um, his team at the BLM have, have uh, constructed to help you with the interpretation um, but that's part of the, I think, what's fascinating about traveling across Utah. And this is one of those great resources that it's really a public resource for us to be able to see um, these sites and these features preserved. Um, in some cases, you do have to use your imagination to, to think about what it would have been like to live here. Um, in other cases, some of these features, if you've never seen a trestle or a box culvert um, or a stave culvert, which is sort of these round culverts um, constructed out of wood and stone, you know, those are there and present for you. And so there's not a lot of imagination because they are still so well preserved and along this um, piece of the byway in northern Utah. Let's take another break, come back with our final segment on this. We're talking about uh, the Transcontinental Railroad, specifically a section in Utah on Mosan BLM land. Uh, there's a team of anthropologists uh, led a multi-year study to better understand that Utah section of the railroad. 
The result is a publication, uh, Rails East to Ogden, Utah's Transcontinental Railroad Story. Uh, it's in the Bureau of Land Management's Cultural Resources series, and it's uh, now received an award from the U.S. Department of Interior. We're talking with Molly Cannon, Executive Director of USU Museum of Anthropology, and Michael Sheehan, Cultural Resources Program Lead with the Bureau of Land Management. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a new publication, Rails East to Ogden, Utah's Transcontinental Railroad Story. This is in the Bureau of Land Management's Cultural Resources series. It's received an award from the U.S. Department of Interior. And uh, we're talking with uh, Molly Cannon, Executive Director of the USU Museum of Anthropology, and Michael Sheehan, Cultural Resources Program Lead uh, with the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, so Molly Cannon, uh, I'll ask you, and then uh, then Michael Sheehan. So Molly Cannon, um, this particular study and uh, and the work that, that you did for this, uh, any surprises come out of this? Anything stand out to you that you'd like to to, to share that uh, you learned uh, from these particular studies? Well, uh, first time I'd like to I think recognize just the amount of work that is present in this publication that was led by by Mike and um, Chris Merritt of the Utah State Historic Preservation Office, as well as Mike Polk, um, where they've compiled, you know, just all of this archival research um, and coupled it with archaeological work. I think that's one of its incredible values is that in this publication you're getting those stories woven together, and they've just done um, a fantastic, brilliant job with that. For me, um, you know, the mapping projects have been very exciting, um, and this past year, and I'm hoping Mike will spend his time talking about this part of the project, they led a pit project where they um, excavated a Chinese house. Um, I think this is going to be one of the most important um, elements that come out of this work is to really understand, um, you know, the construction of these houses. So this is where um, some of these Chinese laborers would have been living. Uh, Presumably there would have been multiple of these houses in this part of um, Terrace where this work was was completed this last um, fall. And um, just from this one excavation, we've learned a lot about how those houses are constructed, um, and then the material effect remains um, the artifacts that are associated with these living spaces. And some of those include, um, you know, things like, um, you know, very utilitarian things that you would expect, um, cups and bowls and tins. Uh, bottles, but also I think some of the, um, you know, that people had an opportunity to relax and have some leisure time. I don't want to overemphasize that they had leisure time, but they had some, and we know that because of the material record as well. Um, So we find gaming pieces, um, and some of those have come out of these excavations. Um, And then the food. I really think we're they're still sort of performing at much of the analysis of this uh, of these excavations, but uh, we know that there are foods that you might expect 
from these 19th century historic sites in in western Utah, canned foods. Um, but there's also a fair amount of um, Chinese food that's coming into the site. And whether or not those are coming in on the railroad, some of them maybe they've brought with them or maybe they've um, we think they possibly could be growing things. An example, and I'm not sure that this could actually germinate, but I believe there was some ginger found. Um, and maybe Mike has some updates on some of that work. So, Michael Sheehan, yes, same question to you. Uh, tell us uh, one or two things that stood out from you uh, to you from, from this research. Well, um, there, there were literally two things that, that have struck me in, in the work we've done at Terrace in particular that, that shed some light on preconceived notions about life in a frontier town and, um, and, the, and the way of life of the people who were there. Um, the first, and, and this all falls under the heading of, of folks who will ask archaeologists, what's the neatest thing you ever found? Um, and what I'm about to share is the neat. Um, when, when we did some initial work on the main street side of town, uh, roughly the north side of the railroad grade, I found um, um, some plaster fragments that when I put them back together, represented a decorative molding that was a, an egg in a raptor claw. Now, on the face of it, one would say, well, big deal. It's a piece of decorative molding. But what that tells me is that even though Terrace was a rough-and-tumble frontier town that, that really doesn't visually lend the appearance of anything resembling wealth, Somebody in that town had enough wealth to invest in decorative moldings in their home. And, and that surprised me a little bit. I, I really didn't expect to see that, to find that uh, at a place like Terrace. Now, the flip side of that coin is uh, some of what we recovered as part of the excavations we did for the pit project in Chinatown. We tend to think of... The, the Chinese workers on the railroad as being essentially unskilled, illiterate labor, which is most definitely not the case. And, and a key piece of evidence in that came out of the excavation of that house in Chinatown. Um, we found a fragment, uh, a decorated fragment of what's called an ink stone. In the 19th century, ink was literally in a, in a dry form. And it came in a cube, and it had to be ground up and mixed with water to make ink. Well, as part of the excavations of this, this house in Chinatown, we found a fragment of one of those ink stones, and it came from inside the house. So what that tells us, among other things, is that somebody living in that house was literate. They, they had reason to have an inkstone. They used the inkstone. They were writing to somebody, writing letters to family back in China, maybe writing to family members, working along other parts of the grade or in other communities nearby. Um, it's hard to know with any degree of specificity, but there's evidence of literacy there. And that's, it doesn't sound like much, but, but that's something, and it's an important something. And we didn't have that before. And... 
And it was, it was somewhat surprising just because of the preconceived notions that we tend to have about those kinds of industrial settings in the 19th century. Um, I, I think that um, I think this work we've been doing is is just um, literally the tip of the iceberg. We know so much more now than we did even three years ago before we started doing the pit projects up at Terrace. But it's like any good science when it when it's done right, you answer the questions you start out to answer, but those stimulate a dozen others, and that's where we're at now. Like Molly made reference to the the dietary materials, we had a notion of of what folks were eating at places like Terrace. But now, when you get into the ground and you start pulling out food remains, now you you answer the question: What were they eating? Well, we know, but where was that? Where was where were those foodstuffs coming from? Were they coming in on the trains? There are remains we found remains of cuttlefish, which are not native to Utah, so we know that they had to come in on the train. And that, that kind of gets back to that observation I made earlier about even though in remotest Box Elder County, that train gives you access to the entire world. And so for me, what has been most remarkable about all of this work has been the, the linkage, if you will, between this isolated community in Box Elder County and the rest of the world. There, there are layers of, of activity some that are local, some that are regional, some that are international. And it's, and it's all there at Terrace. Mm. We, we just have to, we have to parse out what we, what we see in the archaeology and, and make a, a coherent story out of it that integrates with the historical record. And sometimes it, it contradicts the historical record. And that's, that's another, another beauty of archaeology. We, we have a multidisciplinary kind of approach here that that offers some checks and balances so we have a a better idea about the accuracy of the story that we're telling and i think we've we've um done a a pretty decent job of that so far well we're uh, just about out of time we'll uh, leave the conversation there i just want to put this uh, note in i'm sure you join me in this um uh, a note about vandalism right we do want people to go out there but uh don't take artifacts right don't vandalize uh, respect the these areas. Exactly. Uh, take pictures. <laughs> yeah, take pictures. That's right. Um, uh, so, Michael Sheehan, we're, we're, we'll have a link to this publication on our website here with this episode. Uh, how else can people get to this uh, publication? Um, they can they can contact me directly at the Salt Lake Field Office. Um, they can email me. We have we have some copies, some hard copies that are available. Um, or I can I can facilitate access to um, whatever digital links there might be. Okay. Well, we've been talking with uh, Molly Cannon, Executive Director of USU Museum of Anthropology. Molly Cannon, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Mike. And Michael Sheehan has been with us, Cultural Resources Program Lead uh, with the Bureau of Land Management, the Salt Lake City Field Office. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, too. I, I enjoyed it greatly. And uh, we'll go out with uh, Beehive Archive, as we do on Wednesdays. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Travelers from all over the world come to hike Utah's famous Delicate Arch. But they often overlook the rich history of the humble log cabin sitting at its trailhead. 
Learn more about it after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Delicate Arch is a famous part of Utah's landscape featured on gift shop coffee mugs and our state license plate. Although visitors come from all over the world to see Delicate Arch, the small creek flowing past the trailhead's parking lot is also an important part of the unique landscape of Arches National Park. Long before it achieved international fame, the land below Delicate Arch once served the crops and cattle of the Wolf family, who used the nearby springs to completely alter the dry desert landscape. Indigenous people used the land we now know as Arches National Park for millennia, harvesting plants and strategically following precious water sources across the landscape. In the late 19th century, a Civil War veteran named John Wolfe claimed the 100-acre land below Delicate Arch as his own homestead. He came to raise crops and cattle, as well as to benefit from the arid climate believed to improve overall health. He named his ranch Bar DX, and grazed cattle that eventually devastated native grasses in the area. The freshwater stream running near Wolf's settlement, called Saltwash, made the area perfect for farming. John and his son Fred put the stream to work by damming the water to raise melons and pumpkins and create irrigation ditches for root vegetables. John's daughter Flora joined the family ranch in 1906. Flora brought with her an interest in photography. John built a sturdy cabin for her that had an actual floor and real windows and gave her a camera with photo-developing equipment. His gifts of a cabin and camera made the wolf legacy at Arches permanent. Flora captured the first-ever photograph of Delicate Arch, and today, the cabin John built for her is one of the only surviving remnants of the ranch at the Delicate Arch trailhead. More than a place of natural wonders, Arches National Park is also a place of unique human history. Next time you visit the famous Utah landmark, make sure you visit the old wooden cabin by the parking lot and the critically important freshwater stream that at one time sustained a whole family. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.